that game three loss, I, 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 I was ready to be done. If I would have been a reporter at that Mike Budenholzer press conference, I would have become the person who threw the shoe at George Bush. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Here's your host, Grant Bills. I love sports. I love Wisconsin sports. Sports are my favorite, right? It's what I do in my free time, mostly because I have nothing better to do, right? I love watching games, sitting and taking notes and coming up with ideas on what to talk about and what's interesting. Last night, no Brewer game, no Bucks game. For the first time in what felt like a while. I'm not sure actually the last time the Brewers and Bucks didn't play in the same day. Probably wasn't that long ago. But it felt like it was a while. And last night, I didn't really know what to do with myself. The entire NBA was idle. I suppose I could have watched Monday Night Baseball on ESPN. It's hardly Sunday Night Baseball, though. The Braves were playing, thank God, because it had been like three days since we put the Braves on national TV. I ended up just watching no sports last night. I said, screw with it. I'm going to take the night off. I'm going to get to bed early. At least that was my plan. It didn't work out. Feel well-rested today to tackle the day. I'm not well-rested. I I have a flannel that's missing buttons on today. I, I, I don't feel like I took advantage of my free time to rest and recuperate last night, but that's fine. This is 100% fine. The play-in games are starting tonight for the NBA. No bucks. That doesn't start until this weekend. So we have the Pacers and the Hornets tonight. Not exactly a especially compelling TV, and the Brewers are back, and so is Christian Yelich. News broke within the last 20 minutes. Christian Yelich is going to DH tonight, so we have a lot to talk about. This show is coming up all aces. It's the Wisco Sports Show, and my name is Grant Bills. Hope you had a nice, relaxing night last night, not stressing about the Brewers only scoring one run or worrying about the impending doom at some point of the the Milwaukee Bucks in the postseason. It's probably a very optimistic or a pessimistic, rather, way to frame that. Optimists are probably thinking a little bit differently about the Bucks, But last night, we had a chance to kind of just hang out. All of our teams were idle, which is a, n- a nice feeling, right? We don't have to worry about one of our teams disappointing us. We don't have to stress through games. So last night was nice in that way. I want to talk about the Brewers coming up more after 5 o'clock. We're going to have our Tuesday conversation with our good friend and executive editor, the man-in-chief, the grand poobah of reviewing the brew. That's David Gasper. We're going to talk about the return of Christian Yelich because I— I think it drastically changes the outlook of this offense. I think some believe that there is a ceiling on this Brewers offense. Like, oh, even when Yelich and Wong get so, or Yelich and Hira get back, right? They can only be so good. I think this can be a really good offense if they get Yelich back and he stays back and he hits well. And they get back Keston here and he hits well. I think this could be a really, really good offense. Not just a viable one, not just a competent one, but a really good offense. And I want to talk about that idea uh, at least a couple of hours before the return of Christian Yelich. We'll discuss that with David Gasper coming up after 5 o'clock. At 5.30, uh, we'll we'll hear from Craig Council as well. A lot of brewers in the second half of the show. We're also going to speak with Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus at 4.35. One of my favorite guests. We don't have a Mount Rushmore of guests, but if we did, he he would certainly be in the running. Maybe we can work through that. Next time sports shut down, we'll do a Mount Rushmore of all of our guests. Very excited to talk Packers with Eric, get his thoughts on the draft now that we're a couple weeks removed, the Aaron Rodgers drama, and some bigger philosophical questions about the Green Bay Packers franchise that I want to hash out with him. That's coming up at 435. Your text welcome the entire show from now until 6 o'clock, 608-796-2558. You can call as well, and you can tweet at Wisco Grant. There's a day on Twitter today. Yesterday, Eric Clapton got himself trending again, which is really hard to do for someone who is as old as Eric Clapton, but he has managed to do it. Uh, Ron Wolf getting dragged on Twitter the last days, the last two days, too. He did an interview with the big show in Milwaukee with his buddy Leroy Butler. Just wanted to BS about the Packers, and he's getting dragged by everybody. Cowherd was putting him on blast today. So it's been a, a, It's been an interesting last 24 hours on Twitter. You can follow and tweet at me. At Wisco Grant. Let's start with the Bucks because that's what we do when we don't know what to do. It's like, well, nothing's new with the Packers, nothing's new with the Brewers. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the Bucks. I think they've been put on the back burner far too often in the last couple of weeks. The playing games start tonight, which is very, very similar to the first four. Right? If you haven't followed along with this idea, if you haven't kept up with this idea of what they're doing. 
for the first time this year, they're doing the, the, the play-in tournament. So the 7 through the 10 seed in each conference, they get a chance to battle it out for the final two playoff spots, the 7 and the 8 seed. So four teams all duking it out for a chance for two spots. And the, uh, the, the fortune of playing the 1 and the 2 seed uh, in either conference, which is a tall task. Philly and Brooklyn in the East, Utah and Phoenix in the West. Sheesh. That's what they're going for. And those games start tonight. Very similar to the first four, right? We have Charlotte, Indy, Memphis, L.A., Golden State. And in college basketball, we had UCLA and Michigan State, right? Good teams that were a threat, and UCLA went and went up going a solid distance. Now, Wichita State was also in there, so they can't, they can't all be good, right? I don't know how many people are tuning in to watch Charlotte, especially without Gordon Hayward. I think it'll be interesting. Indy is without everybody. They're without Karis LeVert, who has COVID, or he's in the health and safety protocols, and the rest of the team is on the injury report it's a mess it's not all going to be good but between the lakers and the warriors and maybe the celtics i don't know maybe you get something interesting like ucla came out as an interesting option and an interesting threat in march madness this last year after the first four the bucks don't play until saturday so i think it's as good a time as any to reflect a little bit think about things and consider where we are currently in the buck season and where we've been it doesn't really feel like it, but this season's been going on for a while. I actually had to look up when this season started. It started on December 23rd, and it was a game against Boston in which Jason Tatum banked in a game-winning shot. I remember the, I, I remember the, the discussion after that game. It's like, oh, Boston's going to be really good this year. What a shot by Jason Tatum, knowing that Giannis was covering him, so he had to go high off the glass. Yeah, that's what he did from three. He really he heaved it up extra high and, and called glass from 40 feet away. Yeah, that's how that went. Boston season never really was that the high point of Boston season I don't know people are wondering the Christmas Day game versus Golden State when the Bucks just hammered the Warriors on national TV it's always entertaining a nice reprieve from a year ago when they lost to the Sixers and I'm pretty sure Phillies fans and, and Sixers fans just that was their NBA finals was that Christmas Day game I'll remember that season's been going since December 23rd 72 games in matter of just a couple of months they really packed it in you're of course really into it at the start of the season as always you're locked in you're dialed in right you're all in on the bucks and then you kind of trail off a little bit after that first week or so and maybe your experience is the same with the brewers when the season starts you're there for every pitch and then two three weeks in you're like okay i can kind of take it easy i can settle in i don't really need to see all of these games but when the season is young and fresh and new you don't want to miss anything so I think we got really into the NBA and really into the Bucks right when the season started. And then our interest kind of trailed off, especially because the Packers went late into the year. They went all the way to the NFC Championship game, had their inaugural loss in the title game. And then the Brewers started up not too long after. The interest for the Bucks has been there, but at times it's taken a seat on the back burner. And I'd say from the beginning of March, really, which was about 35 games in, to about three weeks ago, a lot of folks lost interest including myself at times. I didn't want to. It's just the way that it shaped up, right? Everybody was resting or, or injured or, or like the, the lineup night to night, it was, it was a mess, right? Primetime matchups on ESPN on Wednesday or Tuesday, Thursday of the games on Turner, so TNT. The games are all a mess. The lineups are a mess. I keep using this example. I remember getting really excited one night to watch Lakers Sixers, hyping myself up. Oh, it's going to be a great game. Two of the best teams in the league, one in each conference. This could be great. Could be a finals preview. And then LeBron doesn't play. Anthony Davis doesn't play. Joel Embiid doesn't play. It's like, what are we doing here? What are we What are we, what are we doing? None of these games matter at all. I saw a tweet today from Tom Haverstrow, who covers the NBA for, can I remember, Yahoo? Let me check here. Yahoo, Yahoo, Yahoo. Used to be at Yahoo. His Twitter profile simply says National NBA Insider. True hoop contributor. Oh, he writes about culinary stuff too. That's interesting. Tom Haberstraw, I think he's been on the Bill Michaels show before, pointed out the fact that Jimmy Butler missed two of the three games against the Sixers, all three games against the Nets, and all three games against the Bucks. Now that's one example of one player on one team, but that's fairly indicative of the rest of the league and how this season went. Nobody was playing. Big games really weren't illustrative of how these matchups might go when everybody's healthy. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. A lot of those matchups were worthless. And I, I do think this is important. And it's not something I thought about it until this week. Once it gets nice outside, 
And once it doesn't get dark at 5.30 p.m., we can go outside and baseball is back. You know, Wizards versus Bucks on a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. isn't as fun. I'll say it. Right? When we have other things to do, when it's not miserable, and when we have other choices other than to just go back to our apartment and throw on the TV and just cruise around League Pass and see if the Memphis Grizzlies are playing the Charlotte Hornets, like, sorry. When there's other options, when the weather's better, I, yeah, the NBA is not quite as appealing. It was a weird season. And and now we're to the point where things are getting very, very real. Very quickly. Think about it. The Bucks are only guaranteed four more games. They could get swept up by the Heat. That's it. They're guaranteed four more games. Which is a nutty transition to think that we have been somewhat disengaged from the NBA and from the Bucks for a couple of weeks. Maybe some of us a couple of months. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to flip a switch as fans and get dialed in and treat these games like they're the end-all be-all. Because they are. They're elimination games. As Bucks fans, we got to we got to strap it in. Right? we got to invest emotionally. Get ready to get our hearts broken, of course. And understand what's on the line here. The stakes for the Bucks in round one and round two were pretty darn high. In round one, if they lose to the Heat again, it's it's nuclear. Bucks fans, stay off social media. Don't watch TV because we're going to get bullied 100%. 100%. Giannis, Never welcome on any top five list. Never welcome on any MVP ballot. Coach Bud, never going to be taken seriously, right? You're the laughing stock of the Eastern Conference if you lose to the Heat in the first round. I'd imagine they'd consider firing Bud. And if the series gets really ugly, maybe you think about trading Chris Middleton. And I love Chris Middleton. I'm just trying to think how the Bucks might react to what would be kind of a nuclear outcome. If you got if you got beat bad in five games like you did last year, be bad, be really bad. And if the Bucs lost in round two, let's say, to the Brooklyn Nets, there's a few things to consider, right? If it's a good series, that's one thing. But if it's a blowout and the Bucs are outcoached badly by a first-year head coach and Steve Nash, mm, mm, that's a little different. And I'm all for being patient, right? Only one team can win the finals every year. And part of what I love about Giannis is he gets that concept. He's hinted at it in interviews. He's like, hey, we might get it done this year. We might not. And we'll come back. We'll keep grinding. And eventually we'll break through that wall, which I love. But if you lose in round two again this year and it's ugly, you're getting farther away from your goal, not closer. You, you, were, you were two wins away from the NBA Finals in 2019. And if you continue to make progress the other direction, you regress. Something's got to change, right? Now, if the Bucks go to the Eastern Conference Finals or the NBA Finals, I really shouldn't complain. Right? They have a tough path in the East this year. To go Miami, probably Brooklyn, and then probably Philly, that's a far cry from what we saw the last two years when the Bucks simply had to beat who? In 2019, go Pistons, Celtics, Raptors. Should have made the finals, should have won the finals. Last year, they started with the Magic and went to the Heat. Who The Heat, the Heat weren't that good last year. They got hot, got a couple of good matchups. They took advantage of the bubble. He weren't that good. This year, this is a bona fide playoff run. The Bucs would have to pass through. Miami, Brooklyn, Philly. Those are three teams, none of which are slouches. Now, I think they're better than the Heat. I, I, don't, I don't believe they're better than Brooklyn, and I'm not sure about Philly. Be a heck of a path. If they were able to get to the finals this year, that might be their biggest accomplishment, even if they don't win the finals. And I shouldn't complain, although I will. Because if they make the Eastern Conference Finals or the NBA Finals and they don't come out on top, it will simply be another example of one of our teams getting really close, but not closing, not finishing the job. Right? We we emotionally guard ourselves against disappointment with the Bucks, maybe even more so than with the Brewers or the Packers. I, I think we were all in on this last year's Packer team, which is why that loss hurt so much, and I think so many of us are still really upset about it. I don't know if the Bucks can hurt us like that because I don't know if we open ourselves up. I don't know if we're vulnerable enough to to let the Bucs do that to us. But maybe we should open up a little bit and get excited and start to believe. I was listening to Bill Simmons, his podcast through the ringer with Ryan Rossillo, and they did their, their regular season wrap-up, postseason preview, and it got me fired up. Like a couple of details they mentioned, and I'm listening along thinking, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Dang right. I mean, Drew Holiday in the postseason, this is something the Bucs haven't had. We've been living with Eric Bledsoe and George Hill. DeAndre Liggins, right? We have Drew Bleepin' Holiday, who can guard whoever. And I know Bledsoe's been good on defense in the past, but he's not as good as Drew Holiday. He's not as versatile. And I think mentally there was a disconnect there, too, where Bledsoe just struggled in the postseason. 
the word that Simmons, I believe, used, Bill Simmons, used about the Bucs is malleable, right? They're flexible in the way that they can match up with other teams. I mean, think about it. You could line up your big three. Let's assume that Holiday, Giannis, and Middleton are on the floor. Well, let's fill out the other two spots. You could go P.J. Tucker and a shooter like Bobby Portis or Dante. You could go big and strong, Lopez and Tucker, or you could go Lopez and a shooter and put P.J. Tucker on the bench. A lot of different options. None of them are bad. All give different looks and provide different advantages and disadvantages. I guess it's up to Bud to use those extra two spots and, and rotate players in to, to take advantage of the situation and the matchup. Miami's also playing minutes with Trevor Ariza and Iguodala. Those guys, I'm not saying they're washed, but they're not even who they were last year or two years ago. And recently, Miami's been bad on defense. And we're going to talk more about that coming up here in a minute. Miami's been bad on defense recently. They stack up with the likes of San Antonio, Minnesota, Cleveland, Orlando in the last couple of weeks. Not for the entire year. Defensively for the entire year, they're they're pretty good. I found this number very odd when I was looking at defenses today. I don't quite know what to make of it. If we use defensive rating as the measuring point, the Heat rank 8th in the league and the Bucks rank 10th. Very comparable, right? Both teams are pretty good. They're not elite, but they're pretty darn good. Now, that's, once again, those numbers aren't indicative of the last couple of weeks, but instead of the entire season. But regardless, both very good. If we use three-point makes allowed as the measuring point, Miami is 27th. Milwaukee is 30th. Both of these teams like to give up the three, which leads me to believe there's going to be some negative and positive variance, some good and bad luck that really plays a role. Who's going to get hot? Which shooter's going to get hot? We're going to have a classic Nico Miritich, Fred Van Vliet equation again the Bucs are going to have to work through. People forget about the game that the Bucs hit 29 of 51 three-point attempts versus the Heat. People forget that happened, mostly because TNT turned the game off and put on something else, which I've never once seen in my life until that game, uh, but I didn't get to witness history. I just read about it after the fact. That's probably why people forget the Bucs hit 29 threes on the Heat. Let's take a break. Come back. I want to talk more about the Bucs. We are also going to speak with Eric Eager. We'll get into Packers coming up at 435. Pro Football Focuses, Eric Eager. More of the Wisco Sports Show after this. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, rolling on. My name Grant Bills on Twitter at Wisco Grant. Brewers back in action tonight. Christian Yelich back in action as well. And I say that uh, non, uh, what would be the word? I, I'm not trying to make a pun there. His back seems to be doing much better, but he is back in the lineup tonight. Is the DH. It works conveniently after an off day that they're in Kansas City tonight. Brandon Woodruff on the mound. Talk more Brewers in about an hour. We're going to speak with David Gasper reviewing the brew. Hear a little bit from Craig Council. You know, do our thing. Talk about the issues of the day with the Milwaukee Brewers. Right now, we're talking about the Milwaukee Bucks playing games start tonight. Are we are we watching the playing games? I think I'm going to just because if something crazy happens, I don't want to miss it. And I really like the NBA, but I don't. I don't know what 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 are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with these games here? So the playing games tonight. The first one starts at five thirty, so I'm going to have to watch the first part while the show is going on. The first game is probably the worst game, depending on your perspective. If you're a Pacers fan, you probably feel differently. If you're a Hornets fan, you might feel differently. That's the 5:30 game. And then the late game, Wizards-Celtics. I am very interested to see the Wizards because I think they're like a sneaky, like dangerous team. I don't think they're going to upset anybody, but they are the cliche team that no one wants to see. Like I, I do think that cliche holds up, and I do think that's true about the Wizards because they're finally healthy. Their players are clicking at least as much as they're going to click. They're still a very flawed team, and they're superstars. At least Westbrook is is a flawed player. But that's kind of fun to watch. That's what the playing tournament's for. So those are the two games tonight, the Western Conference games tomorrow. We'll talk more about that as the week goes along. We're talking about the Bucks though, and I think as we get closer to the start of the playoffs, which for Milwaukee is Saturday, we got to think seriously about the rotation and what that's going to look like. Because all season long, we've all said it. Right where we're like, well, that guy's not going to play come playoff time. That that guy better not see minutes in the postseason, right? Bud better keep him stashed on the bench in the first and the second round, right? We say that all the time. And you hear that in especially the national media, 
as well. It's like, oh, Pat Connaughton. Oh, he won't, you know, fun regular season player. He won't be playing the playoffs. I, I just think that's a conversation that we hold about basketball just to fill the time. Right? Like, we, we say stuff like that all regular season long. It's like, oh, Thanasis, a fun story, but won't play in the playoffs. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. By the way, Thanasis, it was announced he has a little bit of a break in, uh, in one of his leg bones. I'm not a doctor. I won't try to spell it out scientifically. Uh, but he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. So they might actually be without him for all of the first round or more, which is a bummer. So we'll, we'll leave him out of this discussion. But guys like Pat Connaughton, Bryn Forbes, Bobby Portis, uh, DJ Augustine when he was on the team, Torrey Craig before they shipped those guys away. Those are the borderline players, and you wonder, okay, are they going to play in the playoffs, yes or no? And if yes, for how many minutes? And in what circumstance? And in what juncture of the game right and in my opinion there is no definitive answer there is no definitive answer for how much a bench guy should play when he should play if he should play at all because I think playing time should be 100% fluid I don't like the idea that half the roster is worthless as soon as the playoffs start I think that's a limited dumb uninspired way of thinking about basketball all these rotational players are tools their implements that a coach can use to put into effect ideas and concepts and coaching principles, right? If you're going to make an adjustment, well, I need this certain player to execute this certain thing. Make sense? Is that, that, is that checking out, right? The, the bench and the collection of guys on the bench, it's like a toolbox. And some days you need this tool, some days you need that tool. Other days, you don't need any tools. You can just do the work with your bare hands. You can use the starting lineup to take care of the job. As much as I hate them, the 2019 Raptors are a great example of this, about how playing time and a rotation can be fluid from series to series. Fred Van Vliet is an amazing example. He's a huge difference maker against the Bucks in the 2019 playoffs. Now, yes, Kyle Lowry was great. Kawhi Leonard was great. I'm not saying Fred Van Vliet was the reason they won the title, but he was one of the biggest factors in that Bucks season or that Bucks series. 76ers series was the second round, and then the Bucks series was the Eastern Conference Finals. And if we compare these two series, the Philly series went seven games, and this was how the minutes shook out for Fred Van Vliet. 25, 18, 21, 7, 16, 16, 15 for a total of 118. And then in the next series against the Bucks, his minutes go like this. 14, 24, 31, 25, 37, 34, for a total of 165 minutes. Now, there was a double OT game included in there, to be fair. But 165 versus 118, those minute counts aren't exactly close. Sergi Baca, another key player on that team, his minutes were inverted in comparison to Fred Van Vliet. Played a lot of minutes in that 76er series. 19, 13, 16, 32, 22, 22, 29 for a total of 153. And then in the Bucks series... By game, once again, 17-27. He played 14 minutes in a game that went to double overtime. Very indicative of how his playing time dipped in the Eastern Conference Finals. 24-19-25 for a total of 126. I know 153 and 126 are somewhat comparable, especially when there's a game difference. That's a minute. That's a difference of 27 minutes. So if you add on a seventh game to even it out in an average of 21 minutes a game, playing time still decreased by half a dozen minutes in the Buck series. My point. Fred Van Vliet, not a huge factor in the Sixers series, but that doesn't mean that Nick Nurse wasn't afraid to use him against the Bucks. And the opposite was Serge Ibaka. He was a useful player against the Sixers, who were a little bit bigger than the Bucks. But then in the Milwaukee series, ah, I'm going to go a little smaller. I'm going to use Fred Van Vliet. I'm going to use Norman Powell. And Serge Ibaka's minutes are going to dip a little bit. Played 14 minutes in that double overtime game. I think that goes to show you. My point. Let's not pull our hair out thinking how much or how little Pat Connaughton should play in a game or Bryn Forbes or Dante DiVincenzo or any of these role players really outside of Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. Right? It's not about who plays how much and who should get this many minutes and who should stay on the bench. You got to take this situationally and you got to react to situations as they come and matchups as they come. What the Bucks will need against the Heat Probably not what they will need exactly against the Nets. And if they're lucky enough to make it to the conference finals and see the Sixers, they will probably need to roll out some sort of different mixture and, and different assignment lineup. Something to keep in mind. It should change throughout the postseason. All good coaches 
are willing to change and adapt as the playoffs go along, series by series, matchup by matchup, situation by situation. Let's take a break, talk Packers, draft, Rodgers. I have some big philosophical points about the Packers I want to bring up as well. Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, will join us next here on the Wisco Sports Show. Wisco Sports Show rolling on. Appreciate you hanging out. My name Grant Bills on Twitter at Wisco Grant. Twitter's kind of been blown up the last half hour. As soon as the show started, all the entertaining stuff started happening. Tony LaRusse is upset with one of his players. <laughs> Hit a bomb off of a Twins position player, which is just fun. It's just funny. You don't need to get mad about that. And our next guest, Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus. I see him tweeting about it. I, I gather that Eric is not a huge uh, baseball fan. Another huge headline, Eric, you might have seen this. Vikings legend Joe Webb was just released by the Giants. I didn't know he was still in the league. What do you think about uh, your boy, former Vikings quarterback, now on the market? Well, I, isn't he uh, also a Packers legend, given how he just like kind of gifted the Packers that playoff <sighs> game in 2012? You know what? You know what stinks is I, for the last 10 years, maybe have lied to myself a little bit saying that Tom Brady's really lucky and he gets all the breaks. And I think we just kind of conveniently forget that that happened or I forget that it happened for sure. Yeah. That was, that was my first year teaching at UWL and they, the Packers and Vikings played in the playoffs. They played the week before too. Uh, and they somehow Christian Ponder pulled one out and, and beat them. And then they got in the playoffs and, and in classic Ponder form, Ponder wasn't even ready to play. It was, I think they were just trying to catch the Packers off guard. And I could tell in like the first drive, like Joe Webb, as he was falling away, just threw a little lollipop up in the air. And I'm like, oh man, this Packers team isn't even that good. And this game is over. You have the Joe Webb game. I remember that uh, very fondly. Eric Eager, who spent some time at UWL. I never took math classes, so I was bummed not to have you. But for the next 12 minutes, I'm going to do my best to pretend. Uh, Chief uh, Research and Development, very smart man at Pro Football Focus and also co-hosts the PFF Forecast pod. I wanted to get you on right after the draft, Eric, but I'm like, okay, he's he's busy. He's got a lot of people to talk to. And I know you spent some time in Vegas. You took some time off. So now that we're a couple weeks removed, and hopefully things have settled down. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about the draft and some other things. I'll just open the door. You take it any direction you want. What did you think of the Packers draft? You know, I, I don't they, – they kind of overdrafted, especially early. I think Eric Stokes, in, in our minds, was, you know, on our big board was 72nd. So they took him at 29, um, which, again, like, you know, restocking a cornerback makes sense for them given what happened in the NFC title game with Kevin King, who they re-signed to a modest deal. Josh Myers was, again, another player, uh, Ohio State center. Makes sense to draft the center when you lose Corey Lindsley, but I don't. I think they overdrafted him as well. I like the Amari Rodgers draft pick. Um, you know, so, again, with them, and the, the, the best value I think they got was Mississippi State running back, you know, uh, slash player Kylan Hill in, in round seven. So, I, you know the Packers are a team, and they've and they've done this because they've built a team that's pretty sound. They their draft picks don't have to help them out every single year. Uh, generally speaking, you need to look you know a year or two back before you know you can see sort of the fruits of that labor. And so you know it happened last season with with the 2020 picks, none of whom became starters right away. Um, does it happen again with 2021, where we don't necessarily see? Uh, those guys playing right away, um, you know, come fall. Something I asked Matthew Collar last week, because I think it's such an interesting debate, and it's one that's really contentious with Packers fans, like whether you can draft a, a, a judge a draft class right away. Some people say you got to wait three or four years. It's like, well, I don't know about that. I Like, you can judge a class from the jump. Now you see how it plays out, but I think we have a pretty good idea of the positions they got, the value they got. How do you go about judging a draft class, even if we haven't seen these guys play yet? Yeah, I'm of the belief that you can absolutely judge a class right away yeah. in the sense that, like, you know, the, this is a marketplace. And if you if you go ahead and you take a player that many people have, let's say rated 40th in the draft, like, like maybe we're lower on Eric Stokes, but, like, let's say he's the, like, the 60th best player in the draft, and you take him at 29, that's just, like, a poor allocation of resources. Like, you know, it's the same thing as, like, if you're New England and you take Tom Brady with the first pick, in the 2000 draft, well, yes, of course, you know, that would have ended up working out fine, but you also would have forewent the chance to take all the other players you took ahead of Brady in 2000, right? Like, yeah. these things have prices, and oftentimes, 
you know, draft picks will overcome the price that you paid for them. They'll, they'll, you know, or they'll fail to uh, e- even, you know, meet the price that you took them at. But you don't know that a priori. You're supposed to make decisions at the time. And if you're consistently off market, like we've seen this with the Raiders taking Cleveland Farrell at four when he was the 15th best player in the draft, you know, this past season taking Alex Leatherwood at 17 when he's a second-round pick. It's like if you consistently do that, you consistently become a team like the Raiders. Like no one is better at beating these liquid markets uh, consistently. So that's where I'd be worried, and that's where I do think you can judge a draft class. Now, if you're consistently beating the market, that's fine. But there isn't a team, actually, if you look historically, that pick for pick is consistently beating draft markets. So you, you sort of have to be able to judge it in real time and know that there are going to be some players that you don't expect to work that do, and some you do expect to work that don't. And this is a topic that Eric tackles in a piece. You should read it. It's up at PFF. Uh, yes, it went out earlier today. From poor to elite, how NFL teams transitioning from one state to the next, what does it mean for team building? Drafting is a crapshoot. You just have to make the best bets possible and, and hope they pan out in one way or another. The, Pack- the Packers never draft for need, and we hear that constantly, until they need a corner, and then they have no problem reaching or drafting just as many corners as possible. And I, that frustrates me because it's a position that you can't really afford to mess up. And I think sometimes they're always playing from behind at that position. Eric Eager, pro football focus, told you I had Matthew on last week, Purple Insider. You've done a pot or two with him. He's great. I, I just asked him as kind of an outsider, as an outsider perspective, obviously he covers football, but he's not a Packers fan. I'm kind of insulated with Packers people, and I hear the same discussions and, and things you know, over and over again. I'll ask you the same thing. You're not a Packers fan. What do you think of the way in which the Packers are handling the Aaron Rodgers situation, their quarterback situation? Uh, it, it's, it's weird, right, because it's, we've seen this happen. We've seen this happen you know, years ago when they kind of nudged you know, Brett Favre to retire, and then he didn't retire probably, you know, in hindsight earlier than he wanted to. And then, you know, he came back and they, you know, ultimately made the right decision. You know, what ended up being the right decision was, which is, which was to move on to Aaron Rodgers. I, I, I think now, though, in a situation you're in now where rookie quarterback contracts are, are very inexpensive, um, quarterbacks that are as good as Aaron Rodgers are, like, you know, there, there was a trade that somebody proposed on, you know, on our, our social team that I think, you know, for almost any quarterback makes sense to trade him for that, like three first-round picks, et cetera. But, like, the elite quarterbacks almost don't have a price because yeah. it's just so difficult. So, and, and the piece that I wrote, it's like 45% of teams who are elite one year stay elite the next year. That's the highest probability of staying in one of those classes. Like, once you're in that group, you can only really just mess it up. You know what I mean? And I think, unfortunately, when Rodgers and Favre were happening, that first-round draft pick, you know, cost more money. Nowadays, they're cheap, right? So if the Packers just cut bait on Jordan Love, it's, it's not actually that expensive. You can go in. The Jets went from, you know, Darnold all the way to, to Zach Wilson, and they're fine. Like, they're, they're no, like, no love lost there. And, and so in this particular instance, I would not play hardball with Aaron Rodgers. And I think, unfortunately, they have not been necessarily as forgiving of his feelings or understanding of the situation. Now, to, to, to their credit, I guess, is he did not have a great 2018. He did not have a great 2019. So I can understand taking love. But it, once he rewards you with an MVP season, I think you just say, look, like, we'll, we're going to ride this until, it, it's, until it's done. The Jordan Love pick, in hindsight, was a mistake. And we're going we're gonna to ride or die with Rodgers. And when Rodgers retires, we might have some bumps along the road. But as the article I wrote today shows, is like, being bad in the NFL is not an absorbing state. Like, you're out of there quickly if you make some good decisions. And I think teams are super afraid of that. And that's why they sort of jump the shark on picks like Jordan Love. And in turn, that really irritates the quarterback in Rodgers. And after, you know, a dozen years with him, you had to have known he would not have taken that draft pick lightly. Well, the Jordan Love pick, in theory, makes sense for all the reasons you just mentioned. But when you try to put it in practice, it gets messy when you're dealing with rich people and egos and superstar athletes. You said you just mentioned something, and you talked about it on your your Sunday podcast with George. Elite teams with elite quarterbacks should just, like, just bottom out. When it's all said and done with your star quarterback, just like, don't try to build a bridge. Just just ride it out. And this is something I've talked about for two months now. Like, teams shouldn't be as scared of being bad as they are. Now, baseball and basketball, that's a different thing. But the NFL is so elastic. 
right? If you're bad, there are so many mechanisms in place to immediately help you get very good again. The Dolphins are a good example, right? Smart teams have shown that you can do it really quickly. I think the Packers are so scared of going back to the 70s and the 80s that they're hurting their chances of winning right now in 20 and 21. And I I just, I don't know. It, it bothers me because it's if you go, if you're bad one year, it's really not the end of the world. It really isn't. And I think a lot of Packers fans, I think the Packers believe that it is, and it's not. Well, and Packers fans have enjoyed the fruits of this you know, understanding too, is that there's almost no rewards to being above average. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, they're like, if you, if Jordan love is a, is a good draft pick, chances are the Packers are not going to be elite with him. They might be above average, but as, as you watch Minnesota, as you watch Chicago and you know, the Jim Caldwell lions, it's like, there are no, there are, you're just like the, the sort of just above average, but not elite is almost worse than being bad in the sense that like, you're not winning Super Bowls. You're not even contending for Super Bowl titles, except for in rarest of cases. Like, you need a last-second touchdown against New Orleans to even get in the NFC title game, and then you get beat by Nick Foles. Like, there, there's all kinds of, like, re- returns to being amazing, which Rodgers gives you. There's almost no returns to being okay, which is what Love more than likely is going to give you if he pans out. And then there's tons of returns in some ways to being really bad because you get the draft capital to be able to – to acquire a quarterback like Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, guys like that, which is really what you want. I mean, Jordan Love is some is sort of splitting the difference between the you know it, he's not an elite prospect, but he's also not awful either. And and that not awfulness sort of makes every single you know situation with Aaron Rodgers extremely awkward. You lead me perfectly into what I want to ask you last, and it's it sounds like I'm hating on the Packers. I'm not. Although I'm going to be honest, Eric. I think they deserve a little hate. They've lost four NFC championship games in seven years. Like, I I don't know if it was this last game that just put me over the edge. I'm I'm kind of sick of it. Like, I think they deserve to get a little frustration from their fans, especially now with the quarterback thing that's that's going on. I wish I had an hour to talk to not only you, but a lot of people about this topic, but I think I've condensed it as much as I can. The Packers worry me, and it's for the reason that you just mentioned with Jordan Love, because I think Gudikins, like Thompson and Wolf before him, Ron Wolf having a tough week, by the way, I feel bad, they believe, and Gudikins believes, that a head coach quarterback is like 90 95% of the battle. Like, And it used to be like Steelers, Cowboys, Packers, they had always won that way. But I think the edge from having the best quarterback head coach, I think it's getting smaller. I don't know how much smaller, but teams are so smart now, they're finding ways to win without elite quarterbacks. And if Jordan Love isn't fantastic, which chances are he won't be, I, I think the Packers won't know what to do. And what will happen is Packers fans in the front office will say like, hey, we told you. Like, we had it great when we were losing in the NFC title game. I-, I worry that this team isn't good at the little things. You said finding value in the draft, making sharp trades. I, I Now I have to worry about in-game decision-making after what LaFleur did in that game. I worry that if Jordan Love isn't at least an 8 out of 10, that this franchise won't know what to do around him. And that really concerns me. It really Am I, am I wrong in that? Well, you brought up a team that I think is a really good example of this, like Pittsburgh. Like, PFF has collected data from 2006 to 2020. They've had the same quarterback all of those years. Mm-hmm. They've had the same head coach in all but one year. And now that you you sort of see breaches in their brilliance, right, you see uh, Cleveland, Baltimore, two of the smartest teams in the NFL, like their fans don't know how to react to not being the favorite in the division. Uh, and I think, you know, when they start to lose this season, it's going to be a, a, an upheaval for everybody. And I think Green Bay – I don't think is there quite yet. I do think they're a smarter team than the teams like Pittsburgh, but I, I kind of agree with you. I think the benefits to having a gr- a good coach and a good quarterback are not that high anymore, unless that good quarterback is on a rookie deal. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately the Packers are going to be two years into the Jordan love experience, assuming the best happens and Roger stays, they're going to have wasted two years of cost control on, on Jordan love. So the edge is almost completely gone there. I think the benefits of having an elite quarterback and elite head coach are, are amazing. And I think, you know, the Packers fans are sort of stunted by the fact that you guys have made, you know, a lot of NFC title games, but haven't won a Super Bowl since 2010, but make no mistake. You guys are in the hunt every single year. Mm -hmm. The, the issue is, is like, if you drop down even one peg and your coach is good and your quarterback's good, but not great, you're not, you're so transient. You're not even contending. You're kind of like the Niners who are sort of, oscillatory between you know have a shot 
and then an injury happens and they're bad. Have a shot, injury happens and they're bad. And I'll say this, Green Bay has not been in that position for a while, due in large part to how great their quarterback play is. I just, I worry that they don't know how to build around a Matt Ryan or a Baker Mayfield. Not, like, Jordan Love as a player is very different than those quarterbacks, but in value, right? What you need to give a player like that. I don't know if they have what it takes if Jordan Love is a 7 out of 10, which would be great. Like, if he could be Matt Ryan, that'd be excellent. The odds are, are probably low that he's even that good. But I, I, I'm concerned that they can build around a player like that. That's what worries me moving forward. Eric, you are great. I love having you on. I got to say, before I let you go, you gave some fashion advice on your podcast on Sunday. And you were wearing a Nebraska Cornhuskers hat, which I know is your alma mater. But, like, one of these times, just throw on a UWL hat. Just throw one on. I, I have I have a UWL sweatshirt. I will wear it the next time George allows me to, to slum it on the podcast. <laughs> I, I will I will throw one on there. Uh, and uh, I used to have a lot more, like, I want to say that, like, somehow it got lost when I was moving, but uh, those colors, the maroon and, and, and uh, gray, those, those, those are good colors. By the way, I am wearing a flannel today that's missing buttons, so I am by no means <laughs> a, a, a fashion man myself, so I appreciate that. Eric, appreciate the time, man. Enjoy the off season, and it sounds like you had a little bit of a vacation, and you can probably wind down a little bit after the draft. And thanks for the time, man. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on, Grant. Take care. Yep, you as well, Eric Eager. Pro Football Focus on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. Read his stuff. The podcast is great. And if you're a gambler, it's even better. I'm not a gambler, and it's still interesting to to hear about the way you talk about the odds and the markets and how these people come up with the odds that they do because it's very instructive about the way the league works and about how you can figure out some of these teams and the way they do business. Thank you to Eric. Let's talk, uh, not take a break, continue to talk Packers coming up next. More of the Wisco Sports Show after this. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show. Appreciate you hanging out. A lot of brewers to be discussed coming up in the second half of the show. Christian Yelich is back. That's exciting. Tony LaRusse is being an old man about one of his players hitting a home run off. Um, is it a studio? Williams, a studio? I thought it was a studio. I haven't watched a Twins game in a while. I apologize if there's Twins fans listening. I know I'm butchering his name. Just throwing a 46-mile-an-hour hook. And one of the White Sox batters just, oh, took it to dead center. It was amazing. Tony LaRusse is saying, don't worry. We'll punish him right here in our family. We'll take care of it. Okay. <laughs> Go yell at a cloud. Go fall asleep behind the wheel. That's not a funny joke. It's not a funny joke. Don't joke about that. Just got off the horn with Eric Eager of Pro Football Focus. I always learn something when I talk to Eric. He kind of makes me step up my game a little bit. I don't know math at all. Pro Football Focus, the way that they follow games, and I guess you could talk about advanced analytics for basketball or even baseball, do make me feel a little bit like I would have paid better attention in math, studied math a little bit better. Makes you want to be a smarter sports fan. He wrote a piece today, and I would suggest you read it. Now, it's behind a paywall at Pro Football Focus. It still lets you read, uh, I don't know, two or three pages worth of really interesting data. So even if you, this is, sounds so bad, even if you don't pay for it, you still read a good chunk of it. <laughs> Talking about how teams go from above average consistently to below average consistently and how teams go back and forth. I believe the word Eric used was oscillate oscillate back and forth between above average and below average from elite to poor right and the Packers are only behind New England in percentage of weeks spent above average following the new CBA so in this current era of the way the NFL works 2011 and on the Packers have spent 94.7 percent of their weeks above average with New England Green Bay Pittsburgh Seattle New Orleans Kansas City what do all those teams have in common Great quarterback, Brady, Rodgers, Big Ben, Russell Wilson, by and large. He came a little a couple years later in 2013, but even before then, they were still good with Hasselbeck and others. They had a good running game, good defense. Right, New Orleans had Breeze and Sean Payton. All of these teams have great head coaches, great quarterbacks. And I think all of these teams are similar to each other and that maybe they're a little bit old-fashioned. Eric referenced Pittsburgh. I would reference Green Bay in the same vein, and I think Seattle, conveniently enough, Seattle is ran by a disciple of Ted Thompson, much like the Packers. 
These are old-fashioned organizations, and I think they're operating in an unsustainable way in the year 2021. Yeah, a head coach and a quarterback will win you games. That is the best way to contend for a championship. Don't get me wrong. It's also really difficult to get a Hall of Fame quarterback. You don't just go out and get another Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady or Russell Wilson or Big Ben or Drew Brees, right? And I think some of these other teams that are on the up and up, you talk about Buffalo or Baltimore or even Cleveland, as weird as it sounds, these teams are making really, really good decisions and finding the edges on their roster. How can we get a little bit better here, a little bit better here? How can we take advantage of this dumb team that's willing to trade us this at a great price, right? I think... Pittsburgh, Green Bay, Seattle, New Orleans, they need to start operating like some of those teams and stop living in 1995, and that's my concern for the Packers. Maybe it's a privileged concern. I know we've been to a lot of NFC Championship games. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm worried because I worry that Jordan Love is just okay at best and the Packers really don't do much with him. And we're stuck going 500 wishing we were losing in NFC Championship games again. Let's take a break. Get into the Bucks. More Brewers coming up next on the Wisco Sports Show. Sports show rolling on. The show's just picking up. I know we only have a half hour left, but we're about to reach our final form. The, the playing games have started. The Charlotte Hornets versus the Indiana Pacers. And you might think, Grant, that sounds so underwhelming. Um, you're you're right. It, it is. It really is. This game is gonna stink. I'm gonna watch every second of it, though. Absolutely. Brewers are back tonight as well after getting last night off. 7-10 start. Yelich is back in the lineup. Things seem to be on the up and up. Life is good. And when life is good, it's typically because we're talking to David Gasper, editor-in-chief Grand Poobah at Reviewing the Brew. Gasper, how are you today? Hello. I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm really entertained. I've been following along with this thread. Jesse Rogers of ESPN has been all over it. And good for him for getting this quote because it's blowing up. Why don't we talk about, just because it's funny, Tony LaRusa being upset that your mean Mercedes hit a bomb off La Tortuga, uh, the Twins position player. <laughs> the quote that everyone's that's killing me, he made a mistake. There will be a consequence he has to endure here within our family. I just, I don't, even, I don't even know what to make of baseball sometimes. I love it. I love how dumb it can sometimes be. Yeah, and the, I mean, there's even a, an, another quote that I, I think was a little bit uh... – Worse, he he like joked about like trying to like spank him or something or like you know, or that it wouldn't be that he he's too strong or something. I'm just like, wait, what? Oh my god, that's oh, I love. It. See, people get so bent out of shape about this stuff. They're like, oh, baseball's so stupid. Let the kids play. You know what? I'm just kind of here for the back and forth. The people who want the celebrating, <laughs> the old people who hate it. Like, I'm just kind of the guy standing in the background who just likes to take this in as entertainment. I don't want this debate to end because I think it's really fun. Oh yeah, I mean it's it was a lot of fun, and I think it was a lot of fun seeing the home run, and you know I, I'd encourage that more. But as we all know, Tony Larusa is a Hall of Famer baseball person, uh, so it, right. you really kind of can't argue with him there. So shades of Mike Ridiculous. McCarthy saying, "I'm a highly successful NFL coach." Same kind of thing. You know, you know what I like. What what I like when a player hits a big home run, when they look at their own dugout, like Avi Garcia did this the other day where he looked at his own dugout and he threw the bat down, like, straight down into the ground. I think that's my favorite celebration, and I think that's good. Like, we should tolerate that. If you want to, like, make gestures to the other dugout, if you want to stare the pitcher down, you go to town, but, like, if you get thrown at, all right, great. That's a fun part of the game, too, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like, the Brewers, like, they've, like in more recent years, they they've had like you know some more like fun with it. Like as we all know, like watching this team, they're all kind of about fun. They do like energetic, you know, whatever stuff. But they haven't really as been as big on the bat flips and the showing up like the pitchers and the other teams. Like they'll slam it down, they'll be excited with their own dugout. Yeah. But they don't really go after uh, the other guys. But they still kind of keep it fun. They're still kind of you know they'll let the kids play, but they're not doing like the full on like you know taking a selfie like Ronald Acuna or any of the other type of stuff. That's too much. I think in the NFL, too, where the celebrations lose me is when they're, like, really pre-planned, like, they're choreographed, like, everybody get lined up. It's like, no, 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 no. I like a good celebration. It's brief. It's quick. Like, the belt. The the belt celebration. That's perfect. It's 
It's mm-hmm. poignant. It's done, and it's not this big production. I well, this debate is never going to die. Like sports radio tomorrow, they're going to be debating unwritten rules in baseball, and it's and it's awesome. I'm here for it. I do want to talk to you, David Gasper, reviewing the brew about Christian Yelich coming back. This news wasn't really a surprise, right? It seemed like the last hurdle to clear was he was able to play three or four days in a row. We got that, and he's back. This isn't unexpected, right? No, it's not really unexpected. I mean, the fact that he made it through the weekend feeling good um, and, you know, reporting everything was seeming fine. Uh, it really kind of seemed to make sense. They had the off day yesterday, and then now, I mean, being in Kansas City, he can spend the next two days uh, being the designated hitter, which he's in the lineup tonight as a designated hitter, so they can kind of ease him back into it a little bit. Um, but, yeah, the, this is something that was uh, – pretty much kind of expected after seeing him make it through the weekend uh, with everything reporting to be good and the report on Monday morning obviously was good and they they brought him back and it is not a moment too soon for this offense. Well, here's a positive spin, okay? I I think right now Brewers fans look at this offense. It sucks. I got a text the other day who said there's no good hitters. I was like, well, Batting average aside, because I think we obsess. We see a guy's a 260 career hitter or 250. It's like, oh, he's not any good. Well, we need to look a little bit deeper than that. I think this lineup has a couple good hitters. I like Wong. I like uh, Shaw and Kane and Narvaez. I, I don't think people appreciate enough the positive impact that Narvaez has. Just seeing pitches, quality at bats, right? Even when those guys are getting out, Yang, uh, Kane, uh, Shaw, uh, Wong, they're, they're productive outs, or, or they're seeing a lot of pitches. Maybe not productive outs, but they're seeing pitches. I think what the Brewers have right now is a good foundation of a couple of solid hitters, a couple of guys who can get hot, and then a couple of guys It's like, well, we'll see. You know, Pablo Reyes at the end of the lineup. What they need is their big boppers, and Gasper, I think a lot of Brewers fans think this offense has a ceiling. Even if Yelich and, and Hira come back, this offense can only be so good. If they get Yelich and Hira back, and they click on any level, I think this offense can be excellent not just competent yeah yeah absolutely I mean that's really kind of the thing getting those two guys to what they're expected to be because if you have if you have Yelich and Hira in the middle of that lineup and they're playing like you expect them to Mm -hmm. I mean that's you know 30 plus home runs a year with you know 300 plus average uh, from both of those guys in the middle of that lineup. I mean, that significantly raises the ceiling of this offense. And, I mean, yeah, like right now, over, over the last month or so, uh, it it really has been a fairly low-ceiling offense. I mean, you got Travis Shaw and Dan Vogelback as your three, four hitters. Uh, those guys probably should not be your everyday three, four hitters uh, if you want to be a, a World Series contending lineup. And, I mean, we see today, Travis Shaw bumps down to the seventh spot uh, in the order. I, I think, uh, you know, the sixth, seventh spot is probably a good spot for him for – uh, what he is in his career. But, yeah, getting Yelich and, and Hira uh, hopefully some point soon, get, getting those two guys back clicking, I mean, that significantly raises the ability of this offense. And, you know, if they're able to get into any sort of groove, uh, they can really string together some some big wins. Well, and you look at the, the, the Phillies series. It's a great example. They were within one big hit in all of those games from tying or taking mm-hmm. lead. You insert Yelich and or Hura, if you can get one of those guys back in there, even if they go one for four with one significant hit, I mean, that can be the difference between a win or a loss, especially with how well the Brewers are playing. Let's talk about the pitching, David Gasper, reviewing the Brew. You were a day one Corbin Burns Cy Young guy a couple of years ago. We're now seeing that play out to be the case, whether he wins this year or not. I, that's, that's kind of beside the point for me. The point is, is he has reached that form. We'll see how the season plays out. There's a lot that goes into that award. I've seen others at reviewing the Brew now writing similar things about Freddie Peralta. Early on this year, man, I, I I talked about it with you. I talked about it endlessly. Freddie's got all the stuff. He's just got to round into a pitcher. I think the cliche is he's he's a thrower. He needs to be a pitcher. Cutting down on the walks. Man, he's not walking anybody. The strikeouts are there. The walks aren't, and he's been excellent. I'm aboard the Freddie Peralta hype, too, all the way. Yeah, yeah, that, that was somewhere I, I feel like I kind of inspired, you know, one of my writers yeah. there with the with the early Cy Young predictions. And, and yeah, Josh, he he went with the the Freddie Peralta Cy Young hype train, and now he's leading that one. And, I mean, Peralta, yeah, he's got the stuff now. He's added the slider. He's added the changeup. Uh, he's got really a four-pitch mix now. And the final step 
is command. And that, that's really kind of been the issue for the Brewers over the years. I mean, they, they've had guys like, look at Jimmy Nelson. He had all the stuff the entire time. It took him three or four years to finally get that command locked in and to stop walking guys as much. He finally put that together in 2017. And, you know, then his career, you know, went off uh, the rails from there. But with Peralta, I mean, he's still just 24 years old. I mean, he's a very young kid, uh, and a lot of pitchers at, at that age don't have the strike throwing figured out. And in his last few starts, Peralta seems to have the strike throwing figured out. Now, earlier in the year, it didn't as much, and we'll see if you know, him being able to cut down on those walks continues throughout the year. Um, but, yeah, if he can get that command locked in, I mean, he's got as high of a ceiling uh, as anybody. I mean, he, he can form that big three in that rotation with Woodruff, Burns, and, and then Peralta. They both have, or all three of them really, have very good top-of-the-rotation type potential. Um, Woodruff and Burns are kind of more your prototypical build uh, for guys like that. Peralta is a, a little bit smaller, but – He's got the he's got the stuff, and if he can get that command locked in and zeroed in for for the whole season and for all the seasons going forward, he's got that same kind of ability. I always reference this, so if you listen to the show with any regularity, maybe you've heard me bring this up, but I think of the Sports Illustrated cover, and we've talked about this, I think, David, when the Phillies had it going on with Cliff Lee, Roy Halladay, and Cole Hamels. Like, if the oh, Brewers man. like the Brewers could have something similar. And what I love about these three guys is they're all a little bit different. They all bring something a little bit different to the table, which is which is really, really exciting. I mean, we could talk about starting pitching all night. I want to ask you about Craig Council and lineups. You know that I love Craig Council. I I think you're just mm-hmm. kind of missing the point if you're anti Craig Council. Sure, there's things that he do and the Brewers do that might bother you, but I mean he's he's got the cheat codes, he's got this thing figured out to get the best out of these teams and, and to squeeze everything out of these teams. Here's one thing I don't get. We're two days removed from Sunday where Daniel Vogelback had one of the biggest hits of the last two weeks. He finally got the hit with runners in scoring position. He's out of the lineup tonight. And what do you do? You move Travis Shaw over to first base. He's been great at third. And he's hit the ball pretty well. I don't want to mess with that. Like, why do we Why do we need to get Pablo Reyes in the lineup? Sometimes I think that's the complaint with Council that actually might stick for me. It's not the end of the world, but it's noteworthy. Like, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, keep in mind coming into the season that the the strength that the Brewers were going with was pitching and defense. That's what they were kind of really building around in in their run prevention unit. Pablo Reyes is is a pretty capable third baseman over there, and Travis Shaw is probably a better defensive first baseman than Vogelbach. So by putting Shaw at first and by putting Reyes at third, you really kind of have your best possible defensive infield out there. Um, and you know, on on the mound tonight, I mean, you got you got Woodruff pitching tonight. So, you know, if anyone you know does make contact, odds are you're going to be able to keep it on the ground. And having that strong defensive infield is, is going to be key. So, I mean, he he'll switch it back and forth, and he'll get Vogelbach his at bats. But I don't think the Brewers really envisioned getting Daniel Vogelbach every single day at bats. I mean, he, he's a platoon bat at best. Um, so, I mean, he's going to he's going to sit against Bubich, and you know, it, they just kind of manage and, and get all of them in there and get, and get them all there at bats. Sure, and and maybe my expectation with Vogelback is too high. Like when he's not in the lineup, I'm confused. But I guess that never was their plan for him in the first place. I guess that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and Bubich is a lefty, so with uh, Vogelback also being a lefty and struggling against them, you know, it really kind of makes sense to to put him down as well. Sure. I got to tell you, just a bunch of random thoughts that I have about the Brewers. Just let's get it all out there. I love Avi Garcia. Like, I'll take the slumps, man. When he's on, he just crushes balls. And I've really enjoyed watching him. I've really enjoyed watching Colton Wong play. I I think when they signed him, we said, all right, he's perfect for this team. He does this, this, and this. They need this. That's 100% proven to be the case. I, who else am I really in? Tyrone Taylor, what what, what, what are we doing? What do we make of him? That's the last question I'll ask you. What what are we, where are we with? Tyrone Taylor. Yeah, I mean, Tyrone Taylor is an interesting player. I mean, the the Brewers drafted him nine years ago uh, already out out of high school, um, and they've been uh, trying to develop him, and and he's looking like he's finally getting there. I mean, he started off pretty hot. Now his numbers have kind of come back down to earth a little bit, and they they don't really look that great. Um, But, I mean, he's someone who's 
probably a, a fourth outfielder at best going forward. I don't think Taylor's ever going to be a everyday starter in, in the outfield, whether or not the Brewers would have openings. You know, they, they've got a lot of money invested in their top four outfield options at the moment. But, you know, even if they didn't have that, I, I still think Taylor's not going to be much more than a, a backup outfielder at this point in his career. He did hit a couple of hard balls. It's just been rough the last couple of games. I mean, he he had the biggest hit of the season a couple of weeks ago on Mother's Day. So I guess our opinions change yeah. on these players fast. It's a what have you done for me lately type of league, Gasper, I suppose. I appreciate yeah. what you do for me in the show, Gasper. Enjoy the game tonight. I Next time I have you on, we're going to have to talk about you seeing Corbin Burns in person because I got to forgot to bring that up. But maybe next time we'll get into that. I'm sure we'll talk next week. And I think the Brewers are about to go on a heater. I think we're about to get a winning streak. I feel good. Oh, yeah. Well, well, and I got tickets next Tuesday for the uh, Corbin Burns Day, so that's going to be a, a fun one to see in person as well. So we'll have to talk to you maybe Corbin later Burns in the week. Corbin Burns versus Joe Musgrove. Ooh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm all about that. We'll talk to you later in the week or whenever you have time, and, and we can talk about that as well. Some more fans in the ballpark, too. So enjoy, Gasper. Yeah. Enjoy the game, and I appreciate talking to you as always. Thanks. I will. Thanks, man. Take care. David Gasper reviewing the brew. I think I... I think I was a little spastic in that interview. I had a lot I wanted to get off my chest. I'm like, I'm not wasting time. This is just going to be a friendly, erratic, energetic back and forth. I hope that wasn't too messy. I just started talking about players I like. And I was like, wait a minute. What the hell is Tyrone Taylor's deal? What's, what's going on there? Let's take a break. Final thoughts on the Brewers. Anything you have to say as well, get it to me before 6 o'clock. 608-796-2558. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show after this. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.